If you are enjoying this podcast, why not try Baker Street 2033 by the same author, a metaphysical mystery involving Sherlock Holmes, virtual reality, and fictional objects. Available on Spotify, iTunes, and Amazon Music. the same dame from the stage. She was even prettier up close. Her mascara-thick lashes fluttered like overweight masks towards the flames set opposite. Her eyes had been penciled black to point upwards at the sides, oriental style. The barb was sheet metal straight and had the same blue-black sheen as oil. Sit down, Lan, he said, in a voice warm as death. The lashes made another dash for my heart. The victory was almost hers. I made my excuses and headed for a vacant table nearby enough to earwig on the conversation. Don't forget what I said about the detective mags, he called after me. Who was there? asked the dame. Her smoky drawl sang of bourbon and cigarettes. Drink? Burbly. And nothing cheap neither. Rotter. And no, you can afford it. He whistled over to the waiter. Two glasses of Rotterra. On second thoughts, better make it a bottle. We've got a lot to discuss. He gave her the wild eye. I thought we was through, lady. We ain't never through. When she had gristle in her mouth, she didn't mind spitting it out. But I've got no problems now, he murmured. Shy, sir. I have not time for this. I don't care Dixie about your problems, sweetheart. I got plenty of my own. It was a red rag to a bull. The eyes raged in their sockets. She just smiled and lit a cigarette, blowing the glaucous plume of smoke his way. Not done goading him, she adjusted her dress to show off even more of the delicate curve of her leg. If she'd have been a fella, it might even have worked. The waiter arrived and served the champagne. The dame picked up her coupe and took a sip. Mmm, mmm. Drier than a duck pond in Death Valley. He winced at the choice of words. She hitched up an eyebrow and settled back into her chair. She let another stream of smoke wend its way across the divide between them before breaking the silence. Okay, Mr. Philosopher. I'm a curious bird. I'll indulge you. What's this problem of yours? A bloody curious bird is my problem. The dark rabbit. Excuse me? The dark rabbit. This isn't like that rhinoceros of yours, is it, honey? Remember that time with Bertie when you refused to admit that there wasn't one in the room with you both? 
And I was right not to. Facts, not things. Nothing empirical is knowable. If you say so, sugar, it's all grist to my mill. Now, about this, um, what'd you say it was? Duck rabbit. Yes, duck rabbit. Stolen, was it? Yes and no. Then the duck say, the rabbit disappears. When the rabbit say, the duck disappears. But there is never the duck and the rabbit together. Is this my fault as well? No, this is nothing to do with the bewitchment of language. This is to do with the bewitchment of the mind. Aspect, gestalt, seeing as. I see. Well, I don't, he boomed. What'll we toast to, she said, raising her glass. Silence. Huh. Your sense of humor is definitely improving. They clinked and drank, one witheringly so. She smiled. How long's it been since we first met, Lukey? Thirty-one years ago. It was a cold night. I'd been on watch for hours, only me and the moonlight. The beasts of my troops slept like drunk dogs. I had nothing to do but think. And in these thoughts, I find myself tracking a mystery. I was trailing a bitch who'd been screwing humanity like a cheap broad on the make, not just for centuries, but millennia. Yes, the dame in a thousand dollar dress, all sequined sparkles. Name? Countless fools had tried to nail her, ended up laying down with her. Oh, she wooed all the greats. Plato, Kant, Hegel, Schlegel. Why not me? Trick was to leave these fallen comrades where they lay, unread on the shelves, in their dust-bound leather carcasses. Without looking up their mistakes, I could creep up on her unawares here, in Deathback Garden, under the eclipsed light of Western civilization. I could show the world that there was no riddle, only the illusion of a riddle, the bewitchment of language. That was you, Lan. I'm still a looker, ain't I? Well, you are still leading philosophers astray, if that's what you mean. She sighed and stubbed out her cigarette. How many more years are we going to dance this dance? Until one of us dies. We both know who that'll be. Not without a fight, Lan. Someone whistled from the stage. Well, sugar, looks like I'm still wanted somewhere. Be seeing you around. If you must sing, could you at least sing something that doesn't sound like machinery? She smiled. Just for that, I'm going to make the next one Schoenberg. Godwit's eyes followed her as a flourish of scarlet sequins sank out of sight in the tenebrous gloom of the club. When she reappeared on the stage and struck up an atonal cabaret song, he let out a bitter laugh and totted off to see what the philosopher kings had to say for themselves. I took the scrunched-up napkin from Sraffa's out of my pocket and rolled it out flat. The pen had bled into the paper, but I could still make it out. A crude drawing of a duck. No, a rabbit. No, a, a duck rabbit. It felt like I was finally getting somewhere with this case. I just didn't know where. Was this some sort of code? 
a valuable item, say a statue, that he owned and they wanted? I glanced over to the bigwigs. Godwit was pacing up and down in front of their table. He looked more like a madman than a philosopher. Thinking will do that to you. Rattling around inside your own head too long ain't smart. I needed to get an ear on the conversation. I figured the shroud of pipe smoke billowing out of the dance would cover me, so I scoped over and did the old shoelace tying routine. Godwit, dear boy, are you thinking about logic or your sins? asked the tobacconist. Both. You still wish to be perfect? Another man had joined their table. This one looked like a heavy, a brawler. We were discussing whether there are philosophical questions. Popper here has some ideas. Bertie here says you think there aren't any, said the bold man. What rot? Easy, Popper. You'll only get him riled. I'll teach you differences. Godwin had slipped a hand inside his pocket. When he pulled it back, it was clutching an iron poker. It looked like it had beaten sense into no end of skulls. He dropped it on the table to shake them up a bit. They all jumped, edgy as cats. You brainless incompetent giraffes, he said with a mouthful of scorn. What did this lot know about the trenches of the mind? Then he stormed off. I was in two minds. Should I follow Godwit or stick around and see what these eggheads had to say? I followed my gut and went after Godwit. He was the tail after all. I didn't need any help getting distracted, and I couldn't see these sharpshooters saying much I'd understand anyways. I'd need to brace them sooner or later, but I'd shake them down one at a time. So I downed my giggle juice and got going. I made for the sunlight at the end of a long, gloomy, smoke-filled tunnel. English pubs make the bars in New Jersey look like hospitals. Once outside, my peepers couldn't cope with the brightness, so I put my sunglasses on to see where my tail was. I looked both ways, but Godwit was nowhere to be seen. Damn! I turned on my heels and headed back into the fog, intent on pumping wise guys and eggheads for all the juice they had on Godwit. Back inside, and with three fingers of Glen Fiery in my hand, I started making inquiries. I wheedled my way into the tobacconist's gaggle. He had plenty to say in a very roundabout way of saying it. He kicked off with a story about Godwit and a rhinoceros, when he'd refused to admit that there wasn't one in the room. I couldn't see his point. He told me that most people thought Godwit was a lunatic because he's very highly strung, like an artist, intuitive and moody. He gets into rages when he can't understand things. He was the most perfect example of a genius he'd ever known. He listed more qualities, passionate, dominating, acutely intellectual. He is the young man one hopes for. Godwit had been his apprentice, a sort of heir to his intellectual throne. But the tobacconist soon tired of these reminiscences and kept bringing the conversation back round to him. Turns out he'd done time in the big house for conscientious objection. Pacifists, I said, are the only people who can make commies look halfway decent. He wafted this away like so much pipe smoke. Silly boy, you Americans, drifting into incoherence as he sipped his champagne. The smog of pipe smoke was unbearable. I coughed and started to make my excuses, thinking I'd milk the old man dry. But he had one more nugget to give, and it was 24 karat gold. He gave me the name of a book. The Gospel, according to Godwit, he said. Of course, he never thought I understood it, even after I'd written a bally introduction. Finally, I had what I'd come for, a way into the man.
The tidy was catchy as hell. Tractatus logical philosophicus. I tracked down a copy in a second-hand bookshop called David's. One and sixpence. Five bucks. I was robbed. Half of it was in German. I skipped the introduction and went straight for the dope. It was written out like a shopping list. What the hell was this? I read the first line. The world is everything. That is the case. Well, I'll be damned. They'd been playing me like a violin the whole time. I read on. The world is the totality of facts, not of things. The world is determined by the fact, and by these being all the facts. For the totality of facts determines both what is the case, and also that is not the case. The facts in logical space are the world. The world divides into facts. It read like a manual for a Seamus. Any private eye worth his retainer and expenses would recognise the drill. I've been looking at the case all wrong. Philosopher? This guy was no philosopher. He was me, a gumshoe, a keyhole peeper, a private investigator. But what was the case he was working? It was time to start knocking heads and getting answers. you at least sing something that doesn't sound like machinery? This is a reference to Wittgenstein's conservative musical tastes. He seems to have favoured the classical and romantic composers such as Beethoven and Bruckner, but complained that in Brahms one could already hear the sound of machines. The wealthy Wittgenstein household was a champion of the arts in Vienna before the war, and composers such as Gustav Mahler were regular guests. The family itself were musical, and Ludwig's brother Paul became a famous concert pianist. Even after losing his arm in the war, music was often composed especially for him, such as Ravel's piano concerto for the left hand. Wittgenstein had perfect pitch and was a gifted whistler, able to recite whole symphonic movements from memory, and this musical facility finds its way into the noir story in a natural and rather ingenious way. Wittgenstein is known to have been working on the problems of Gestalt, or seeing as, in early 1947, see Monk, 2006, and a definition from the Oxford English Dictionary may be instructive here. A shape, configuration or structure which, as an object of perception, forms a specific whole or unity, incapable of expression simply in terms of its parts, e.g. a melody in distinction from the notes that make it up. Wittgenstein used the duck-rabbit image to illustrate the philosophical problem in his lectures. It is an ambiguous image. Although there is only one image, the mind sees it as either a duck or a rabbit, but never both at once. The reader will have no doubt already experienced this for themselves. In the Philosophical Investigations, published posthumously, Wittgenstein reveals he encountered the image in the American psychologist Joseph Jastrow's work, Fact and Fable in Psychology, 1900. The Duck Rabbit has since gone on to lead a cultural life of its own as, inter alia, a children's book, a craft brewery and a film production company. Here, it features as a plot device, whether a straight-out MacGuffin or something more elusive will become apparent later in the text. 
Although one wonders whether this poor beast hasn't suffered enough ignominy through the caprices of capitalism, Wittgenstein could not have foreseen the usurpation of this illusory creature into neoliberalism's all-encompassing bosom. Indeed, it could be argued that, like the duck rabbit, Wittgenstein has become an object of study, a brand, Wittgenstein TM, a name that shifts units. The Academy must be willing to admit its share of the blame for such rampant commodification. I shall go mad. That way madness lies. These lines from King Lear, a play the philosopher was well acquainted with, could equally be applied to Wittgenstein at this moment. The Austrian seems to have been fearful of madness in much the same way that Lear was. As shall be seen, these black threads are the warp to the noir weft of the narrative structure. Monk suggests the philosopher suffered from indigestion, anxiety and guilt during his stay at Rosero, all of which could have provoked the creation of his detective story. As a sufferer of indigestion myself, I know the milk Tommy Mulcairns brought him would only have made his dyspepsia worse. The purgative aspects of the noir, however, might well have proved remedially efficacious in some respects. But could not the very fear of madness, an inevitable corollary of the prolonged mental abstraction necessary in philosophical thought, have been enough to provoke a ghost madness which finds voice in dear old blood? And have not various recent papers, Lubinsky and Jod, 2012, Goosens and Tynemann, 2013, forged a counter-narrative, reading into the Wittgenstein corpus the genealogical propensity for suicide in male members of the family, including a lifelong contemplation of suicide by Ludwig himself, as well as a repressed trauma of the fraternal incidences of suicide that necessarily pervades the philosophical work at some level, even in its lack. My own research into the negation of other traumatic events in his life, Pinsent's sudden death, the failed engagement with a Swiss woman, Marguerite Respinger, the child cruelty dished out in a Swiss primary school, etc., may account for the maddening guilt that the distance and longueurs of Rosro life could have provoked into manifestation. Such readings expose the abyss between word and event, a traumatic void of that which cannot find utterance and only be lived, endured, whereof one cannot speak, thereof one must be silent. How different that phrase reads in the light of such counter-narratives and now in the light of this noir detective story. The psychological self-violence of repression is condemned to re-emerge tangentially and finds the form of fiction to express itself. Naturally, Murgatroyd et al. have disputed these novel interpretations of Wittgenstein's oeuvre vehemently, see Wittgensteinian's passim, almost as if their very professional tenure depended upon it. One can only hope that they will reconsider their positions in the light of the discovery of dear old blood. To not do so, well... That way madness lies. I'll teach you differences. The line is also from King Lear and said by the aged king as he rages at his malicious daughters, Reagan and Goneril. The poker relates to an infamous heated argument between Wittgenstein and the visiting philosopher of science Karl Popper at the Cambridge University Moral Sciences Club in 1946. Popper had been invited there to deliver a paper entitled Are There Philosophical Problems? During the ensuing debate, Wittgenstein used a poker to emphasise his points and gesticulated with it angrily, something which the visiting professor found objectionable. Popper later claimed that when challenged, Wittgenstein had thrown down the poker and stormed out in a rage. 
The incident has received its fullest treatment in Wittgenstein's Poker by David Edmonds and John Eidenau, 2001. You brainless, incompetent giraffes. This is a direct quotation from Rendezvous with Fear, Wittgenstein's favourite hard-boiled detective novel. It is said by the P.I. Doan to his large dog Carstairs, a Great Dane. The novel was written by Norbert Davis, and in the summer of 1948, the philosopher wrote to Malcolm in America, mentioning he had found a copy in a village, finding it a queer coincidence given his rural situation. He mentions rereading it and liking it so much that he wished to write and convey his gratitude to Davis. He asked Malcolm to seek out any other books by this American author, although, with a typically grim cynicism, he raises the possibility that even if he has written others, Rendezvous with Fear might be the only good one. What did this lot know about the trenches of the mind? The use of italics is curious here. It suggests an authorial intervention in the text which has not happened explicitly up to this point. Trenches of the Mind recalls and inverts the 19th century poet Gerard Manley Hopkins' Mountains of the Mind and seems to suggest a philosophical warfare dug out from his time at the front with the Austro-Hungarian army in the First World War. His notebooks testify that it was here that the Tractatus took shape. In the Tractatus, Wittgenstein believed he had solved the riddle of philosophy and that anyone who read it and understood it would see as he did that there are no meaningful philosophical problems, own the mistaken appearance of such. He ends the work memorably by suggesting that his book is like a ladder that can be thrown away once the reader has climbed up it. Last of all comes a line that is now excised and used in all manner of inappropriate contexts. Whereof one cannot speak, thereof one must be silent. Like Adorno's remarks on poetry after Auschwitz, Modern life conspires to grind these phrases into meaninglessness through an over-familiarity born of misuse. Among competing modern views of Wittgenstein, that of Paul Horwich sees his philosophy as metaphilosophy, i.e. philosophy about philosophy. This view perceives his corpus as examining the limits of language, considering the differences between ordinary language use and philosophical usage. Some go as far as to describe his work as anti-philosophy, anti-theoretical, mistrustful of a priori causes, perceiving metaphysical conundrums as misconceptions, merely the bewitchment of language, which cannot be answered meaningfully, only dissolved therapeutically. Today the linguistic turn lies in ruins, abandoned like the disembodied feet of Ozymandias in the desert of time. Its polysyllabic inquiries have been cruelly abbreviated by the Academy's speculative turn. Realism is writ large in every paper, Object-oriented scholars contest terms such as ontic, ontology, and, improbably, ontologicality, linguistic terms all, and fashion their own neologisms for good measure, such as interobjectivity and neo-vitalism. This is not the place to lament such developments, but it is wearying to bear witness daily to such acts of academic desecration. How far we have come from Wittgenstein's simple plea for quietism, whereof one cannot speak. Thereof one must be silent. Dear Old Blood, Notes on a Wittgenstein Noir will return in Episode 5, The Next Day I Woke Up Early.
If you have enjoyed this podcast, you might like to consider others by the same writer and producer, such as Baker Street 2033 and Modern Gothic. All are available from the usual podcast outlets. You could also consider supporting the writer at buymeacoffee.com slash Neil Fitzgerald. <laughs>